0: So we are continuing our series today in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 7 today, so you can turn there in your Bibles, John 7. In a moment, we'll start in verse 25. In past centuries, it was very common for many of the different Native American tribes to have rites of passage for their sons who were teenagers entering manhood. And so many of these uh, rites of passage involved what some call uh, a vision quest. It usually went like this. The young boy was sent off by himself for maybe a night, maybe as long as three nights, and on his own, he had to do certain things on that quest in order to prove that he was ready to enter manhood. Well, this last week I heard about a certain tribe that did this vision quest a little bit differently. They lived close to a forest, and so on the night of a boy's 13th birthday, they would lead him into the woods several miles from the tribe. They would lead him into the woods blindfolded so he wouldn't know exactly where he is, and they would drop him off after sunset in the middle of the woods, and then they would leave. And so, after a few minutes, he took off the blindfold, and there in the middle of this dense forest, he couldn't see anything. He couldn't see the trees, he couldn't see any birds, he couldn't see any predators. So, with every cracking of a branch, he would wonder if there was a predator nearby ready to pounce. And so, it would scare the little 13 year old half to death. But he would eventually, after what seemed like an eternity, make it through the night. And as Sun up came the next morning. The rays of sunlight began to beam through the the foliage of that forest. And he would begin to see for the first time the trees and the flowers. And then he would look around. He would notice that there's a path leading back to where his tribe was. And then he would see one more thing. He would see a warrior from his tribe standing close by with bow and arrow in hand. And as he would look closer, he would realize... It was his father. All night long, unbeknownst to him, his father had secretly stood guard to make sure his son was safe. And I got thinking about that. That's similar to what's going on here in John chapter 7. Jesus is undergoing some significant attack from the Jewish leaders. It's just six months until he's going to be arrested and beaten and crucified. And the Father in heaven is watching over Jesus Christ as he faces the dangers he faces here in John chapter 7. Remember, we saw last week that there early in the chapter, Jesus makes his way to the Feast of Tabernacles. It was late September, early October. He makes his way to the feast. He comes up secretly, and they expected him to start teaching on the first day of the eight-day feast, but he didn't. He waited until about halfway through the eight day feast to go into the temple courts and begin to teach. We read early in those verses of John chapter 7 that uh, Jesus wasn't attending with his family. He did go up secretly. And he finally, about halfway through the feast, goes into those temple courts. And as he begins to teach the crowds, the first reaction we read about is the reaction of those Jewish leaders who hated him. They were amazed at his teaching. They couldn't believe that someone like Jesus could teach with the authority he taught with. How did he learn all this stuff? Because they knew he hadn't gone to a single day of rabbi school. No Bible college, no seminary, no correspondence class. He hadn't even taken a single online class in theology. How did he know all this stuff? He was teaching circles around most of the rabbis in Israel. Well, in verse 16, Jesus reveals how he was able to teach the way he teaches. It's because his teacher... Is the greatest teacher in the universe. says, I was taught by God the Father. Amen? God the Father taught me. And surprise, surprise, He doesn't have a Bible college or seminary degree either. I was taught by God. Well, verse 20, Jesus is accused as He mentions that someone is trying to kill Him. There's some in the crowd that don't want Him to stay alive. Verse 20, some in the crowd yell out, Oh, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And we see that Jesus, in the verses that follow, address some of those accusations. Not immediately, but He addresses them in a different way. And we see in this crowd this various conglomeration of of different people. You've got the Jewish leaders that want to kill Him. You've got those uh, Jews from Galilee that were there for the Feast of Tabernacles that kind of liked Him, but they were split in their decision about who Jesus was and whether or not He really was the Christ and the Son of God. And today, as we pick up where we left off last week, we'll pick up in verse 25, we'll see a third group of people, the locals there in Jerusalem, who responded in their own unique way to the teaching of Jesus Christ. So here we are in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. If you're there, please say amen. Here we go. Beginning in verse 25, please follow along in your Bibles. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you do know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because the time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Well, Jesus, if you haven't noticed, he had this remarkable ability to rub his belly and pat his head at the same time. Know what I mean? You talk about someone who's good at multitasking. Jesus is the master multitasker. He was able to field questions from the crowd, answer those questions, and somehow seamlessly weave it together into a teaching that was so profound it blew everyone away. How on earth do you juggle various conversations in a mixed crowd and still get your point across? Well, check with Jesus. He seems to know exactly how to do that. Jesus has already responded to the the religious leaders who couldn't figure out how this unschooled man could have taught the way that he taught. Jesus politely listens to the Galilean Jews who accuse him of being paranoid, or in their words, demon-possessed. And then here in this passage we just read, the locals start chatting about Jesus in verses 25 through 27. And their chatter is really interesting. Someone speaks up and basically says, well, wait a minute. isn't this the man that our our religious leaders here in jerusalem are trying to kill and the second guy speaks up yeah i think you're right that's jesus of nazareth but look the, the religious leaders some of them are standing right over there and they're not saying a word to him what's going on with that i don't get it i thought they wanted to kill him but they're not doing anything and then the third guy speaks up and says yeah you guys are right That is Jesus of Nazareth. They did say they wanted to kill him. They're not doing a thing. Maybe they've concluded that he is the Christ. And so this chatters going on among these Jewish uh, residents of Jerusalem that knew what the Jewish leaders wanted to do. The Galileans, remember we talked about last week, they were oblivious to it. They were naive to the fact that the Jewish leaders truly did want Jesus dead. But the locals knew what was going on. They knew what they were wanting to do. And so they're a little baffled here. I thought they wanted to kill him. Why aren't they saying anything to him? And then they say something really interesting in verse 27. How could he be the Christ? We know where this man Jesus is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Now, what on earth are they talking about? Well, in those days, the Jews in Israel believed those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. But they mixed with what the Bible said with all these legends about what they believed the Messiah would be like and what he would do. So their belief in the coming Messiah was a mixture of biblical prophecy and unbiblical myth. And so here we're clued into one of these myths that they had. They believed that when the Messiah came onto the scene, he would come out of nowhere. They would know because Micah 5.2 said he would be born into King David's family. So they knew he would come from Bethlehem. But aside from that, he would just kind of burst onto the scene mysteriously. He would be the ultimate man of mystery. This Jesus or whatever his name might be that would come in and be Messiah. That would be Christ, the Savior of Israel. So they believed Micah 5-2, he'd be coming from Bethlehem. But other than that, they thought he would be a mystery man. Now, I think this is really interesting. Nowhere in this passage, in fact, nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, do we ever read of anyone asking the obvious question. Hey, Jesus, where were you born? We knew that you grew up in Nazareth, but were you born in Nazareth? Or were you born somewhere else? Nowhere do we have a record of anyone asking this obvious question. They start saying, well, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. He's from Galilee. Uh, We know that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. If anyone had simply bothered to ask him that question, maybe their doubts would have gone away rather quickly. The Jewish rabbis had a saying in those days, and the saying went like this. Three things come wholly unexpectedly. The Messiah a godsend, and a scorpion. I, I didn't say it was a good saying. It was just a saying, right? And so evidently, as you're walking around on these dirt roads with your sandals on, it was very common for a camouflage scorpion to reach up and sting you right in the big toe. And so they say, just as a camouflage scorpion could sting you unexpectedly, this messiah will come onto the scene unexpectedly. They believe this to the core, even though it was largely a myth. So, how could Jesus possibly be the Messiah, they wonder. Well, Jesus responds in verse 28. Notice what he says there. He says, yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. Jesus doesn't deny that his hometown is Nazareth. Nazareth. But it's interesting to me, once again, that they don't ask where you were born. They don't ask Jesus where he's born. And so notice that Jesus doesn't tell them about Bethlehem. What does he do? What does he do? He takes the crowd in verses 28 and 29 back pre-Bethlehem. As he says there in 28 and 29, I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus, in these two little verses, really makes three shocking statements. Shocking statement number one. God sent me to earth. He he just bypasses Bethlehem. I'm going to take you back before Bethlehem. God sent me to earth. Now, I want you to think for a moment, because you read this, you hear it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in order to be sent to earth pre-Bethlehem, that means that Jesus pre-existed. His life in this universe, did not begin when his mother Mary was conceived, right? When she had that baby conceived in her womb, Jesus' life didn't begin. Jesus was sent before he was ever inside that womb, amen? And so what's he saying? I came from the Father. I preexisted. I was sent. That is a shocking statement to these Jews. Shocking statement number two, you don't know God. We're going to get back to that in a moment. Shocking statement number three, I know God personally. In fact, I know him as no one else knows him. That's a pretty shocking statement, don't you think? I, I know him as no one else knows him. Now, let's get back to that second shocking statement, you don't know God. Think about the audacity for anyone to stand in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, And tell God's chosen people, you don't know Him. You talk about something that's rather insulting, that's not going to be received too well. Jewish leaders, you don't know Him. Crowd, you don't know Him. But wait a minute, Jesus, we're the chosen people. We're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the ones who God led out of captivity in Egypt after the miraculous signs were performed by the hands of Moses, turning water into blood, frogs coming out of the Nile, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. We are the ones that God gave the Ten Commandments to. We're the ones that God gave the Old Testament law to. We are the ones who were given the promised land. What are you talking about? We don't know God. Jesus reiterates, you do not know God. Sadly, there are many people around us who claim to know God and profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. But Jesus could say the exact same thing to them. You do not know God. How many people do we know across our nation that say, I'm good with God because my mama is Catholic. My grandma was Catholic. My great grandmama was Catholic. My great, great grand. In fact, we can go back 10 generations. We're a Catholic family. I'm good to go. God and me we're like this. Some say, no, 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 it's not that Catholic thing. You know what? I'm a good Christian because my mama was a Christian. My granddaddy was a Christian. My great granddaddy was a Christian. And Jesus on Judgment Day will say, away from me, because I tell you the truth, I never knew you. So many of us think we can ride our parents' or grandparents' shirt tails to heaven, and it never works, does it? We have to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. There are many people around us who claim to know God. They come to church and they know exactly when to say amen. They know when to say hallelujah. They know the words to the songs. They know when to put something in the offering plate and when to down the communion juice. And Jesus Christ will say, I don't know you. And truly, you do not know me. William Barclay reflects on this, these shocking statements of Jesus here in verses 28 and 29. Barclay writes, From now on, Jesus was guilty, not of Sabbath breaking, but of the ultimate sin, of blasphemy. As they saw it, he was talking of Israel and of God as no human being had any right to speak. So the locals obviously didn't like being insulted. They didn't like being told that they didn't know God. So it seems clear in verse 30 that some of them lunged at Jesus. They wanted to seize him. I don't know what they wanted to do once they seized him. If they were able to, maybe take him out to the woodshed. I don't know. Well, they wanted to clean his clock or something. Some people were wanting to lunge at him, but they didn't lay a hand on Jesus because it wasn't God's timing. And since it wasn't God's timing, it didn't happen. Verse 31, still many in the crowd put their faith in Jesus. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? So their faith might have been weak based only on seeing Jesus' miracles, but at least they had a little bit of faith. Amen? Some in that crowd did believe in Jesus. Well, let's pick up in verse 32, here still in John chapter 7. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where does he intend to go? See, where I, I lost my place. Where was I? Verse 35. Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Well, in Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen, in that great chapter, God shares an inspiring prophecy about a great prophet who would one day come onto the scene in Israel. And so that was a commonly known passage among the Jews in Jesus' day, this great prophet. Now, some of those Jewish scholars and rabbis believed that the great prophet talked about there in Deuteronomy 18.18 would be the same as the Messiah talked about later in Scripture. And so some believed that great prophet and the Messiah were one and the same. But even those that believed they were different individuals, there were some things that were said about that great prophet in Deuteronomy 18 that led them to believe he was a miracle worker. Because it says in Deuteronomy 18, one will come, this great prophet, who will be like Moses. And so by like Moses, they believed when this guy came onto the scene, this great prophet, he would be a miracle worker. And so, those who believe that the great prophet and the Messiah were one and the same, they're looking at Jesus and saying, when the Messiah comes, when the great prophet comes, could he possibly do miracles that are any better than what Jesus is doing? Because we haven't seen these kinds of amazing, eye-popping miracles and wonders since the days of Moses. Now, when the Messiah comes onto the scene, we don't expect him to turn water into blood Like Moses did. We don't expect him to have thousands and maybe even millions of frogs come out of the Nile River and swarm a town. We're not expecting that. But you know what? We're expecting some things that are just as eye-popping. And so they're looking at Jesus opening the eyes of the blind and cleansing the lepers, healing cripples. That one guy crippled for 38 years, all of a sudden he can walk when Jesus says a single word. They're looking at what Jesus is doing, taking one boy's little lunch and multiplying it to feed 10,000 people. It's not possible that when the Messiah comes, He could do miracles any greater than what Jesus is doing. So maybe He is the Messiah. Maybe He is that prophesied great prophet. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus does make a shift in His teaching. He had been teaching the crowd where He came from, But he does something different in verse 33. Look at verses 33 and 34 again. He says, I am with you for only a short time. And then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Translation, in a short while, Jesus will ascend to the Father in heaven. Jesus' naysayers and enemies will look for Him, but they won't find Him. And because of their unbelief, they cannot and they will not ever enter heaven. Unless they have a complete change and they repent of their sins and give their lives to Jesus Christ, they'll never make it to heaven. So they'll never see the Son of God again once He ascends to heaven. I would guess that Jesus began this teaching around the time that the temple guards showed up. So... Some of those religious leaders didn't like the direction Jesus was going with his teaching. And so they go back to some of their fellow Jewish leaders and they send out those temple guards. Arrest him. Go get him, boys. Arrest Jesus. And I'm guessing as those guards arrived to arrest Jesus, that's when he made this shift. Going from talking about the past, that he had been sent by God the Father in heaven, to talking about the future, where I'm going, you cannot come. It's very interesting. I kind of imagine the conversation going like this. Two of those temple guards show up to that crowd gathered around Jesus. And one of the guards says to his buddies, all right, let's get this done. Let's arrest him. Come on, let's do this. And the second guard says, no, 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 just, just a minute, just a minute. And that second guard begins to listen to Jesus' teaching. And so that first guard gives the second guard about five minutes. And after about five minutes, he says, all right, man, it's been long enough. Let's arrest him already. Let's get this done. And the second guard says, no, 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 no. What's your hurry? There's time. I I just want to hear what he says next because this is pretty interesting. Just let me finish listening to what he has to say. And then five more minutes pass and 10 more minutes and 15 and 20 minutes. And by the time we get to that next block of time, both guards are hanging on Jesus' every word. Their hearts are gripped. They've never heard any teaching like this. And they've heard a lot of teaching hanging around those Jewish leaders as long as they had. They've never heard anyone teach like Jesus. And so they're sent to arrest Jesus, but they don't end up laying a finger on him. Meanwhile, some of the Jewish leaders continue to listen intently to what Jesus is teaching. In verse 35, they say to each other, where does Jesus intend to go that we cannot find him? Will He go where our people live scattered among the Greeks? Once again, Jesus speaks of things of heaven and many in the crowd, including the religious leaders, could only think of material things. They could only think of things of earth. They didn't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about going somewhere on earth. He was talking about going to heaven. They missed the beautiful spiritual truths because they were so fixated on the things right in front of their faces. Well, let's pick up in verse 37. Jesus said, I am with you. For only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. Oh, that was verse 33. Verse 37 is where I was supposed to be. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified yet. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say the Christ will come from David's family, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one. Laid a hand on him. Remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight day feast. And so, one of the most important rituals that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, I mentioned it last week, is they would go to the Pool of Siloam outside the walls of the temple, and they would dip a gold chalice or a gold pitcher into the waters of the Pool of Siloam, and then they would lead a processional back into the temple courts. And so they would go through the temple courts and they would go up right in front of the actual temple building itself. And there where the altar is in front of the temple building, that priest who took that pitcher and filled it with several pints of water from the pool of Siloam, he would take that gold pitcher and he would pour it into a silver basin beside the altar in front of the temple. And it was symbolically representing what God had done when he had called water from the rock to give water to the people of israel as they traveled to the promised land and so it was an important ritual as part of the feast of tabernacles but interestingly it only took place during the first seven days of the feast of tabernacles they didn't do this on the eighth day so it's interesting to me that jesus says what he says here on the eighth day on the one day of the feast where they're not doing the water ritual what does jesus teach Verses 37 and 38, If anyone is thirsty, let him what? Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus' teaching here is very similar to what he taught the woman at the well back in John chapter 4. But what does he mean about these streams of living water? Well, John gives us a helpful commentary in verse 39. John tells us, That Jesus, when He spoke of these streams of living water flowing from within us, had the Holy Spirit in mind. Amen? How many of you are thankful for the Holy Spirit? On the day of Pentecost, about seven months after Jesus gave this teaching, the Holy Spirit would come down for the first time and fill every single Christian. And from that point forward, whenever someone gave their life to Jesus Christ and became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would descend on them and fill them. So Jesus is making it clear here that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will live inside of you. He will awaken your mind to the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit does that daily in our lives, doesn't He? Ever had a Scripture that just really has you stumped? And then all of a sudden it clicks. And you can't necessarily say it was because a person explained it. It clicked. It's because that Holy Spirit is your best teacher. Amen. He's awakening our minds and our hearts to the truth of God's word. That Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is our comforter. It's The Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. And we're about to do something and we have that conviction in our gut. We realize that's not what God wants us to do. Where does that conviction come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is making that beautiful prophecy here that those streams of living water is that constant flow of God's Spirit that is leading us closer and closer to Christ's will for our lives. Well, John gives us that helpful commentary in verse 39. Warren Wearsby says it this way. I think he says it really well. He writes, Just as water satisfies thirst and produces faithfulness and fruitfulness, So the Spirit of God satisfies the inner person and enables us to bear fruit. At the feast, the Jews were reenacting a tradition that could never satisfy the heart. Jesus offered them living water and eternal satisfaction. Amen? Water from a rock could never permanently satisfy. Water poured from a gold chalice into a silver dish could never satisfy for any length of time. But God's Spirit living inside of us can satisfy us throughout eternity. Amen? God is so good. Well, the crowd responds in a few different ways in verses 40 to 44. Among the Jewish worshipers from Galilee and among the locals, there's a hung jury. Some say, surely he's the prophet. Others are saying, he's not just the prophet. He's the prophet and the Christ. And others are saying, I'm not sure he's either. He can't be because he comes from Galilee. The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Once again, no one bothers to ask him the simple, obvious question, were you born in Bethlehem? No one asks him. And so why didn't they get the truth about Jesus' birthplace? Well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. You have not because you, you ask not. Sometimes we don't have the blessings God has in mind for us. We have not because we ask not. Jesus says if you want to receive, you must ask. If you want to find, you must seek. If you want the door to be open, you must knock. We have to ask. We have to seek. We have to find. Jesus Christ will make sure that he responds. According to verses 43 and 44, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Like it or not, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, is the most polarizing person in history. Anyone that says that Jesus just brings us all together and everybody on the planet can sing Kumbaya together, it's a pretty naive standpoint. Jesus is the most polarizing person in the history of the world. You are either for Him or you are against Him. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Well, Let's finish the chapter, picking up in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who had asked them, Why didn't you bring Jesus in? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them, that mob. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee, Nicodemus? Look into it. You'll find that a prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. Well, it seems the temple guards who had been dispatched to arrest Jesus took their own sweet time returning to those guards there, to the uh, headquarters where they were sent from. Once they were rolling into the precinct, the Pharisees wasted no time asking him, Where's Jesus? We sent you out a few hours ago to arrest Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? And those religious leaders, they don't like the guards' answer very much. They simply say, no one has ever spoke the way Jesus does. Well, that really got them ticked off. Those Pharisees didn't like that. Notice how condescending the Jewish leaders are when they speak about their fellow Jews in verses 48 and 49. They have this we-they mentality. We have to guard against this. Sometimes we've got this we-they mentality as Christians. I'm a mature Christian. You're an immature Christian. I've got it all together. You're pretty messed up. <laughs> I'm a righteous person. You're a sinner. Notice some of these comments they're making, this we-they mentality. We're the rulers. They are the ruled. We know the laws of God. They know nothing of the laws of God. We're civilized. They're a mob. We're blessed, and they are. See that there? How condescending they are to their fellow Jews who don't, do not wear all the vestments of religiosity that they do. They hadn't been trained in the formal rabbi schools like those religious leaders had been. But they look down on the little people and think they're nothing. They're just a mob. They're cursed. They're nothing. They don't understand God's word. There was at least one dissenter in their ranks, Nicodemus. We recognize his name. Jesus had had that one One-on-one conversation with him back in John chapter 3. It was Nicodemus Jesus was speaking to when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was Nicodemus. Here in chapter 7, Nicodemus points out that it's not proper or legal to condemn Jesus without first giving him his day in court. The other religious leaders can't refute Nicodemus' logic, so instead they attack his character. They call him a, quite a little slur here that uh, was very condescending for any of the religious leaders. No one would ever want to be called this among their ranks. They called him a Galilean. Ah! So I, I guess that would be if you're Anglo, someone saying you're nothing but white trash. Okay? If you're African American or Latino, you've got your own words that are oftentimes used to slur you. That would be tantamount. They're saying a slur like that. He said, you're just a Galilean. They don't rebut that what Nicodemus is saying is true because what he's saying is true. It was against both the law and against simple fairness and human decency to condemn him to death without first giving him his day in court. And that's what the religious leaders were advocating. They couldn't really rebut what Nicodemus was saying, so they resort to insulting the man. And the chapter ends with the leaders calling it a day. And going home. Next week, Dr. Grant will be sharing with us. And in two weeks, we'll come back and pick up here in chapter 8. We'll be looking at one of my favorite passages in the entire book of John. Where Jesus has that woman caught in adultery thrown before Him. It's an awesome passage. I can't wait to share that with you in a couple weeks. But this passage we just looked at, I want to share with you three life lessons. Very important lessons we can pull from this passage. Life lesson number one. Don't come to Jesus with preconceived ideas that are a mixture of fact and fiction. Make sure your beliefs about Christ and Christianity come from the pure source of truth, the Word of God. Amen? Let's read that last sentence together. Make sure your beliefs about Christ and Christianity come from the pure source of truth, the Word of God. That was about five of you, and now all of us together. Make sure your beliefs about Christ and Christianity come come from the pure source of truth, the Word of God. Now, as I mentioned last week, there will always be plenty of different opinions about Jesus, right? There's plenty of different opinions about Jesus. You go to a different church, let's say you go over to a Mormon church, they're going to say Jesus was literally birthed by God the Father on some planet out there in the universe. He was a birthed spirit child of God. That's a bunch of hooey, right? That's what they teach day in and day out. You go over to a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall, they'll say, no, 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 the Mormons don't have it right. Uh, Jesus was actually a created angel, the archangel Michael from the Old Testament. That's Jesus. That's a bunch of hooey too, isn't it? You go over to the, the Muslim church, and they'll say Jesus was a good prophet. Some will say he was a great teacher or just a nice man. There's all these different ideas about who Jesus was, And I just want to tell you today, when it comes to Jesus, make sure that you don't come to Jesus with these half-cocked notions that He's this, that, or the other mixed with Scripture. The Word of God tells us exactly who Jesus is. And this is the pure source of truth. We come to Jesus with a pure source of truth. Amen? When it comes to Christianity, there are many different opinions about Christianity out there. Many fanciful ideas about Christians. Some of them are somewhat complementary. Some of them aren't. Some people say, well, Christians are Mormons, and Mormons are Christians. Does that line up with Scripture? No, it doesn't. Mormonism is not Christianity. Some say if you're a Christian, you're a Jehovah's Witness, or if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're a Christian. That doesn't line up with Scripture either. We have to find the truth about Christians and about Christianity from the pure source of truth, the Word of God. Amen? There are many negative opinions about Christians out there. Christians are hypocrites. Christians are homophobes. Christians are prudes. Christians are narrow-minded. Christians are some of the most self-righteous people you'll ever meet. There's no shortage of negative opinions about Christian out there. But if you want to know what Christians really are, where do you go? You go to the Word of God. The Word of God says that we are sinners saved by grace that we have been washed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Word of God makes it clear that we were all dead in our sins, but we have been made alive in Christ. The Word of God says we are new creations. The old is gone, the new is come. The Word of God says that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God says we have been promised a place in heaven where there is no more pain and no more sorrow, no more death or dying or pain. The word of God says so much about Christians. That is where we determine who we are. Do not find your identity in someone's half-cock notion of what a Christian is supposed to be like. Find your identity in Christ and find your description of who you are and what you've been called to do in the pure source of truth, the word of God. Ground your beliefs in the Bible. Many people in Jerusalem missed out on eternity in heaven because they clung to their fables about Jesus. Instead of clinging to the truth about Jesus. Life lesson number two. Some people will seek Jesus, but won't find Jesus, because they will seek Him too late. so important. Please read that with me. Some people will seek Jesus, but won't find Jesus, because they will seek Him too late. William Barclay says it really well. He writes, This passage brings us face to face with the promise and the threat of Jesus. Now catch this, this is so important. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Seek and you will find. In other words, seek me and you will find me. But notice here in John 7, he says to the crowd, You will search for me, but you will not find me. He says that in verse 34. So which is it? If we seek Jesus, will we find him? Or if we seek Jesus, will we not find Him? Long ago, the prophet Isaiah had written these words in Isaiah 55:6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. So the truth is, it is characteristic of this life that time is limited. In Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul, in that great benediction, is saying, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He makes it clear there in Philippians 2 that there will come a day where every single person who has ever lived will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Amen? And there will come a day where every person who has ever lived will bow their knees before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But Jesus is making it clear here that many who bow their knee to Jesus and confess him with their mouth, for many it's going to be too late. For many it's going to be too late. The reality is, whether you like it or not, one day you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you like it or not, one day you will bow your knee to Jesus Christ. But the question for you and for me is, will it be too late? Will it be too late? There will come a day when there will no longer be a hung jury. Everyone will know. Everyone will believe the truth about Jesus. But for so many, it will be too late. Make sure it's not going to be too late for you. You're not promised tomorrow, next week, or next month. Those of you watching online, you're not promised a single day beyond today. So make sure that you get right with Jesus today. Life lesson number three, our final lesson. As we follow Christ, sometimes obedience and danger come as a combined package. So when following Jesus becomes dangerous, don't be reckless, but pray and walk confidently in obedience to Christ's commands. Don't miss that last part. Don't be reckless, but pray and walk confidently in obedience to Christ's commands. I am a firm believer that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Amen? Say that with me. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Turn to the person next to you and say, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Do you believe that, church? Amen. It's the safest place to be. As a Christian, your job is not to worry about the results of your obedience. You're trying to do God's job for him. Don't do that. Let God do his job. Your job is not to worry about the results of your obedience. Your job is to simply trust God and obey. So do that, brothers and sisters in Christ. Despite the dangers up ahead, read the Word of God. Despite the dangers up ahead, listen to the Word of God. Despite the dangers up ahead, hide the Word of God in your heart. So when the day of evil comes and the day of testing comes and the day of rejection of the word of God comes, and it's already upon us if you haven't noticed. When those days of testing come, you will be able to speak the word of God. And you'll be able to live out the word of God. And you'll be able to do what the God has told you to do in his word. And you'll be able to do it boldly and courageously. So you hide his word in your heart and you walk in obedience to him. And you trust Him to take care of the results. I want to say it this way in closing. Your job is to obey. God's job is to deal with the backlash of your obedience. Amen? It's not your job to worry about the backlash. That's His job. Your job is to trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Lord Jesus, we thank You for being the King of heaven and earth. And I pray that there is no one in this room, no one listening to this broadcast, who stubbornly refuses to bow their knees to You, who stubbornly refuses to confess You with their mouths. Lord Jesus, that You are the Son of God and the Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that for none of us here it would be too late when we finally do that. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, confess you as Savior and Lord, and love you and serve you with our whole hearts. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for coming. You were sent by God the Father, pre existent, because you are the eternal Son of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going from this earth to prepare a place for us in heaven where there's no more pain or sorrow or heartache. And I pray that you would just quicken our hearts, Lord, to have our mouths speak the truth boldly about the Word of God. The truth from your Word is not popular. The truth from your Word is countercultural. The truth from your Word is not politically correct. But I pray that we would boldly, lovingly, courageously preach it and speak it anyway because people desperately need to hear the truth before it's too late. Lord, help us to speak your Word. Help us to hide your word in our hearts today and live out your word, especially when the time of testing comes. Be with us, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.